So as you open your Bibles, I'm excited to come back to this message, so hopefully I'm going to finish the chapter this time. <laughs> um, His said, we was the title that I gave for the sermon today, which is, is this Hebrew word that talks about a loving, loyal commitment. A loving, loyal commitment. We hear of many stories of loyalty that encourages us, and we look up to them because they encourage us. And one of these involved two friends, uh, soldiers actually in the World War II, called Jim and Philip. Though Jim was just a little older than Philip, um, he often assumed the role of leader, and they did everything together. They went to high school and college together, and after college, they decided to join the Marines. By a unique series of circumstances, they were sent to Germany together, where they fought side by side in one of history's ugliest wars. One scorching day during a fierce battle and a heavy gunfire, bombing and close quarters combat, they were given the command to retreat. As the men were running back, Jim noticed that Philip had not returned with the others. Panic gripped his heart, and Jim knew if Philip was not to not back in another minute or two, he wouldn't have made it. Jim begged his commanding officer to let him go after his friend, but the officer forbade the request, saying that it would be suicide. Risking his own life, Jim disobeyed and went after Philip. His heart pounding, he ran ran into the gunfire, calling out for Philip. A short time later, his platoon saw him hobbling across the field, carrying a limp body in his arm. Jim's commanding officer upbraided him, shouting it was a foolish waste of time and an outrageous risk. Your friend is dead, he added, and there, is no, there was nothing you could do. But Jim replied, no, sir, you're wrong. I got there just in time. Before he died, his last words were, I knew you would come. And I, those kind of encouraging stories of loyalty They tend to touch us, and this is full in Scripture. We're called to have this kind of loyal commitment. But this kind of loyal commitment is rare and rare in our days. Finding committed loyalty is uncommon in churches, in our families, with our friends. Love has been replaced by sympathy at best. Uh, I'd say it's more like an apathy that we've seen people today. Loyalty is now defined by the confines of personal convenience with a mindset that as long as it doesn't involve risks or personal sacrifices, okay, I I can do this. But I'd rather remain uncommitted. In our account today, we'll pick at a window into a parallel world of God's people and how A loyal God protects and preserves his chosen one through the faithfulness of a friend. In this chapter, the Lord protects David through the loyalty of faithful Jonathan, 
illustrating the point that the Lord often accomplishes his redemptive work in the world through human instruments who are committed to his purposes. Even when it may not seem to be in their best interest, that will put their life in danger to do so. Jonathan is an example to exilic readers, the ones that this uh, book was written to, uh, of the importance of supporting God's program and chosen leader. And it might be, you might be asking yourself, what all of this have to do with me? Why in the world, Ronaldo, are we in the Old Testament? Why are we studying for Samuel? You might be wondering. So before we actually get to our text today, I'm going to take a short detour to Romans 15. So we're going to read these two passages, Romans 15, and then we'll go back to 1 Samuel. So let your finger there, your marker there. And I, I hope that it's clear to you that the Word of God has a purpose in everything that it is written there. Romans 15, chapter 4. What does it say? Romans 15, verse 4. For whatever was written in earlier times, so whatever was written in earlier times, the Old Testament, the Old Testament law, the Old Testament prophets, the Old Testament history, the Old Testament poetry of Psalms and Proverbs, all of those things was written for our instruction. So that through the perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now God is the one who gives perseverance and the encouragement grant you to be the, of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. So that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why do we study Old Testament passages? Because it glorifies the Lord and unifies us in one accord, finding encouragement. As we look back to those examples, we are instructed to not fall in the same mistakes that they did. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 talks about that. So let us not just thinking, oh, this is so detached from me that I, can't, I cannot make any connection. Well, there is a connection that the, Spirit, the Word of God does, and the Spirit of God confronts us. So 1 Samuel 20. And um, since I have already taught most of the chapter, I'm going to pick up a little later on verse 12. Verse 12. So thus says the word of God. Then Jonathan said to David, and they're a little far away. David is hiding here. Just a reminder that he's been running away from Saul. And it says, Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow, or on the third day, behold, if there is a good feeling toward David, Shall I not then send you and make it known to you? If it please my father to do you harm, may the Lord do so to Jonathan, more and more also if I do not make it known to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. And may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. 
If I am still alive, will you not show me the loving kindness of the Lord, that I may not die? You shall not cut off your loving kindness from my house forever, not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord require it at the hands of David's enemy. And Jonathan made David vow again because of his love for him, because he loved him as he loved his own life. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you'll be missed because your seat will be empty. When you have stayed for three days, you shall go down quickly and come to the place where you hid yourself on that eventful day. And you shall remain by the stone of Azel, and I'll shoot three arrows to the side, as though I shot at a target. And behold, I will send the lad, saying, Go and find the arrows. If I specifically say to the lad, Behold, the arrows are on the other side of you. Get them, then come, for there is safety for you and no harm, as the Lord lives. But if I say to the youth, Behold, the arrows are beyond you, Go, for the Lord has sent you away. As for the agreement of which you have you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So David hid in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat to the seat as usual, the seat by the wall. Then Jonathan rose up, and Abner sat down by Saul's side. But David's place was empty. Nevertheless, Saul did not speak anything that day, for he thought, it is an accident. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. It came about the next day, the second day of the, moon, of the new moon, that David's place was empty. So Saul said to Jonathan, his son, Why has the son of Jesse not come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan then answered Saul, David earnestly asked me to leave to go to Bethlehem, for he said, Please let me go, since our family has a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to attend. And now, if I have found favor, favor in your sight, please let me get away, that I may see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger burned against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, do I not know that you are choosing the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Therefore now send and bring him to me, for he must surely die. But Jonathan answered to his father and said to him, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Then Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him down. So Jonathan knew that his father had decided to put David to death. Then Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and did not eat food on the second day of the new moon. For he was grieved over David because of his father had dishonored him. I'm going to preach until the end of the chapter, and we're not going to read it all right now. Um, let's take some time to pray and ask that the Lord will open our understanding as we look to this example 
and we might find the encouragement and the perseverance that the scripture provides for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for your holy words that is inspired as a whole, that is directly from you to instruct us, to encourage us, to challenge us, and to comfort us. I pray that you would do exactly that today, Lord, with your people. May you open our understanding and that we may apply our hearts to these things. By your grace, in Jesus' name, amen. So as uh, we started a few weeks ago on this text, I would like to remind you that though the friendship of David and Jonathan is inspiring, this is not fundamentally a chapter about friendship. Certainly one can use the friendship for illustrative purposes if one's primary text for a lesson or a sermon is dealing with that theme. Say if you're preaching through a series in Proverbs and you're talking about friendship, you can certainly use the friendship of David and Jonathan as an example of that. But I, I have demonstrated to do to you that throughout this, this section of the book, the narrator um, is validating David's claim to the throne of Israel by demonstrating that God has rejected Saul. Saul disobeys God and resists his plans, while Jonathan submits to God and embraces his chosen servant. So we have to look at big picture here. So this is what this chapter is all about. It's about this loyal, loving commitment displayed through a covenant and the security that it gives. I, I do hate what some modern commentators um, or false teachers have tried to twist this crucial chapter in 1 Samuel to speak of homosexuality. Their twisted minds suppress the truth of God's words because God does not contradict himself, and inflate themselves with theories and wicked speculations which are not consistent with the rest of the scripture. For this reason, I'm never, not going to even um, give voice to such wicked interpretations. This chapter shows clearly to us a loyal friendship that is formalized through a covenant covenant that happened in chapter 18, verse 1 and 5. How about we take a look at that? It's a way of reminder. This is the beginning of their friendship, and they make this pact, this commitment with uh, one another. Um, chapter 18, or looking at verse 1 and 5. Now it came about when he had finished his speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant, here it is, with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan stripped himself of his robe that was on him and gave him to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. So David went out whatever Saul sent him and, and prospered. And Saul sent him over the man of war. And you will see this um, expression of Jonathan by taking his robe, his royal robe, as a prince and giving it to David, acknowledging, I acknowledge you as God's next chosen king. Um, and because he loved him as himself, both, both of them, we see that commitment. 
That covenant reaffirmed and extended is the focus of this chapter. The word itself occurs only once in verse 8. So if we can trace back chapter 20, verse 8, you're going to see that word there. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. The provisions of this covenant we just read here in verses 12 to 17 the allusion to Yahweh's as the covenant guard. So when we see the word the Lord there capitalized, it's talking about God's name, Yahweh. Um, he's the guardian of this covenant that they had. Saul's knowledge of Jonathan's commitment to David in verses 30-31 and Jonathan's parting words in verse 42 should banish doubt that the covenant carries the thematic fright of this chapter. So we're going to see four aspects, and I'm not going to spend too much time on the first two because I already covered that, and you'll see in your outline there, but four aspects of what it is a loving, loyal commitment, all right? Four aspects of a loving, loyal commitment. The first one is, from verses 1 through 11, so kind of doing a recap here, the covenant provides safe haven in times of uncertainty, it provides a safe haven in times of uncertainty. David knows that Saul is trying to do, but Jonathan doesn't. We read in the beginning of the chapter that Jonathan is just confused. Why is David fleeing? It's the last time they talked, his father said, I'm not going to kill David. And yet he's turning back on his word. And David is confused. He's, why is he doing so? Is there some wrong that David committed? some guilt on his part of which he's not aware? What in the world is happening? If David could discover the guilt on his part, uh, could discover the problem, perhaps he could address it. If nothing else, knowing what made Saul so angry would help David understand such erratic and irrational behavior. Jonathan seems to be unaware that there is any real danger for David, and, David, and Jonathan is, after all, his father's confident. And, verse, um, and Saul has not disclosed any of this scheme for eliminating David. David knows how to put two and two together. Who would expect Saul to keep Jonathan posted, to keep him in the loop when he's clearly in favor of David? We've seen that Saul lost the spirit of Yahweh, but not his political sense. David knows the true score, an oath, he asserts that there is hardly, in verse 3, the second part of verse 3 there, there is hardly one step between me and death. His friend eventually agrees to assist David in whatever he can. And David, whatever you ask, I will do. He proposes a, a test situation. We read of their plan here. But then he says in verse 8, Therefore, dear, deal kindly that's the word there, the Hebrew word I said. He said, so deal kindly with your servant. You, Jonathan, display this loving, loyal commitment toward your servant. For you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord, the covenant of Yahweh with you. But if there is iniquity guilting me, then you put yourself, you, you yourself put me to death. It's basically what David is saying here. Why would David dare then to turn to Saul's son? Well, only because Jonathan had made a covenant 
of the Lord with David. That is, a covenant in which Yahweh was witness to and guardian of its promises. He's referring to that covenant that we just read in chapter 18, which involves the promises and solemn commitments. That's why in his uncertainty and desperate flight, David turned to Jonathan. There was a covenant, a stronghold of certainty, a safe haven in which both, in, in a both dangerous and a chaotic, chaotic time. David then expects Jonathan to act with this said toward him because of their covenant, even though David is the lesser and the most needy person in this relationship, David refers to himself as your servant. Covenant and this loyal, loving commitment, this reset, are tightly related in the scriptures. Um, English versions, very in the way that they translate this word, for example, our, our word, our translation, New American Standard, uses the deal kindly, um, while the New Jerusalem Bible, uh, the Catholic Bible, says show faithful love. Um, and this is a very common word in the Hebrew Bible. It actually appears 250 times in the Old Testament. And traditionally, it has been translated as mercy, if you have the King James Version, that's how they translate it, or is steadfast love in the standard, uh, revised standard version. Or even some different translations, the New American Standard will have loving kindness. Sometimes simply love in the NIV. So it carries this idea, and that's why I, I think it's the key for our understanding this passage. This um, hesed, this commitment, uh, it carries ideas of love, of compassion, of affection, but often with the additional connotation of loyalty, of reliability, faithfulness. Hence, some translation uses a steadfast love. It's something that cannot be broken, something that cannot be uncommitted. It's that often has, the, has its flavor. It's not merely love, but loyal love. Not merely kindness, but dependable kindness. Not merely affection, but an affection that has committed itself. In our passage, then, David appeals to Jonathan to treat him with this loving, loyal commitment. He has reason to believe that Jonathan will do so because he has promised in this covenant of Yahweh. It is crucial, however, to remember that Jonathan's covenant itself was the expression of love initiated by love. We just read that. The order is this then, love gives itself in a covenant and gladly promises loyal commitment in that covenant. The covenant partner then rests in the security of that, promises and of that promise and may appeal to it as David does here. But that has said ultimately flows not from formal covenant promise, this is not just a formality, but from the very nature of a covenant God. That's why he says the covenant of the Lord who is rich in his said. So God is rich in this. So open your Bibles to Exodus 34, verse 6. Exodus 34, verse 6. This is the very nature of God. This is the first time that he is revealing himself to a person with description. Do you want to know me? This is who I am. So by the mouth of Moses, the Lord said, uh, to speaking to Moses, He's revealing himself. So 34, verse 6. 
the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, Exodus 34, verse 6, it says, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, is slow to anger and abounding in, there's the word there, has said, loving kindness and truth. He who keeps loving kindness for thousands and forgives the iniquity and transgression of sin. For he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. So even though God is a just God, he is also compassionate and loving and that love that is firm and committed. So you will never perish when you fall into this well on this fountain of God's loving kindness. Ultimately, that is our only recourse. And of course, the one who is rich in this fidelity, in this loyalty, has come near to his oppressed people. You seek his, his said, you seek his loving kindness, you will find it. You find yourself in the arms of Yahweh, the God who can be trusted. Don't forget that David has taught you in confusion and trouble. You take yourself to the one who has made a covenant with you because you can trust him. He is the only recourse in uncertainty. What is wonderful in this point is that even as a mere man as Jonathan could display that, let alone how much God, being the source of it all, he can display to his people this loving, loyal commitment. That brings us to our next point, then. The covenant proves a vehicle for uncommon faithfulness. Not only is a, a source or a safe haven for us, it also becomes a vehicle for uncommon faithfulness. So first in verses 12 and 13 here, as you're following the chapter of 1 Samuel 20, verses 12 and 13, Jonathan goes on, oath to formalize his commitment to warn David should he find that Saul intends to destroy him. So he says, Yahweh, the God of Israel, be witness. When I sounded out my father about tomorrow this time or on the third day, behold, if there is good feeling toward David, shall I not send it to you and make it known to you? If it please my father to do you harm, may Yahweh do so to Jonathan or more also if I not make known to you and send you away, so that you might go in safety. And may Yahweh be with you as he has been with my father. So Jonathan is formally now committing himself to always act as he did in chapter 19 already, so to continue in this covenant. And this is very unusual. One simply did not do what Jonathan is doing here. You didn't hand over your place to your rival and promise to protect him. That was not the norm. The norm was there is a new dynasty coming to the throne, and they know that everyone else from the previous dynasty would have to be wiped out. But Jonathan is actually trusting his own life to a person who was supposed to have him killed. Jonathan really did seek first his, not his own kingdom, but the kingdom of another. It didn't make any sense. One of these strange things that covenant accomplishes 
Even more unusual is the commitment Jonathan urges upon David in verses 14 and 16. Time will come when Jonathan, not David, will be a fugitive in this role, the needy one. Though the text is difficult, the overall sense is clear. So Jonathan is going here in verse 14 and 16. Okay, there'll be a time, David, that I know you're going to come to power. I want you to keep your loving, committed loyalty toward me and not kill my sons and my family. He says, if I am still alive, verse 14, will you not show me the loving kindness of the Lord that I may not die? You shall not cut off your loving kindness from my house forever, not even when the Lord cuts off one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David. This section showed that Jonathan, the individual next in the dynasty, is to, who is to be the king after Saul, was the one who took responsibility for the escape of David in this time. The scene really negates any claim that David was uh, duping or uh, coercing Jonathan um, to, to do something, in, to participate in his flight from the king. This is the establishment of covenant between the house of David and the house of Jonathan that later will lead David to defy conventional wisdom regarding the elimination of potential rivals to the throne. Under the terms of the agreement, when David became king, he was to show the son of Saul unfailing kindness like that of God himself. So I'm going to skip ahead here. However, today I know that God's people were not leaving with a king over us, that we're looking for the next king uh, we're, we're not in a dynasty transition, yet we still see this uncommon, this not normal fidelity, fidelity between Christians in the Christian life of God's, uh, God's people through maybe perhaps in a less dramatic form. We all have seen this kind of uncommon faithfulness. One of the most impactful testimonies is that of Jesus himself. I mentioned to us last time we talked, Philippians 2, 2 and 8, talking about Jesus humbling himself to the point of death, emptying himself of his abilities so that he would display his love and care. You see this fidelity when he was loving his disciples until one, just until a year was over, just until two years was over, until they were still with him, until they... Wouldn't deny him? No. The Lord is stuck with his disciples until the end. I mean, I can only imagine and, and picture Jesus washing his disciples' feet. And I, I don't know if you've thought about this, but what is the confusion of the disciples when they say, who, who is the one that is going to betray you? Because he did not treat them any differently. He already warned that one of them would betray him, but he did not treat them with no differentiation. He washed Judas' feet just as much as he washed the other disciples. And he even gave him a place of prominence. He gave him the first piece of the bread. Actually, that it's, you give that to a guest of honor. Who would have guessed that Judas was Jesus' worst enemy. 
No one, because he humbled himself. And if our Lord had done that, we also ought to. Um, I, I am just flooded with memories of seeing the faithfulness of God's people for caring for other believers. In my own life, I have seen that. It, it was this uncommon faithfulness that surprised me to see. I had a surgery a few years back, and uh, I had to be hospitalized for some time. And I, had, I, I saw more church members than my own family staying there with me at the hospital. Where does that faithfulness come from? It is from the Lord. Um, the covenant provides this uncommon faithfulness. So moving on, the part that I didn't get to, verse 24. The third point in our message today is that the covenant may demand costly commitment. It may demand a costly commitment. And this is from verses 24 to 34. Now the readers gather at a distance to watch a table scene. It is mostly a typical monthly occasion. Saul is there in his seat by the wall. I don't know if, I don't want to read too much into it, but maybe he's being so suspicious he doesn't want to have anyone sitting behind him or being attacked. Abner, his general, is there. Jonathan is there. But David's place is empty. If Saul you know, as he's looking at this situation and probably scratching his head, and if he was a Minnesotan, he would probably say, that is interesting. That's different. <laughs> what is wrong here? Where is David? But Saul is silent. On the first day, he doesn't comment anything. He's maybe scratching his head, thinking that this is, this is not common, this is not normal. He surmises that David will be ritually unclean and therefore unfit to partake. Clearly, Saul expected or thought he had the right to expect that David's presence at the table, even after the episode where he tried to pin David down with his spear a couple of times. So, however, when David was absent the second day, the fireworks began, to, began so to speak. The whole section begins with David's place empty and ends with Jonathan's place empty. Now, I want to reflect here a little bit in Saul's rationality. It's not the main point of our sermon today, but think about what in the world he's expecting David to be there in the first place. I mean, you just try to kill the person. Why would he come back? It, it, it makes no sense. And instead of thinking, well, that's the reason why he's not showing up because he's afraid of being killed. That's the logic, right? But look at his wicked reasoning. He starts saying, well, maybe he's unclean. He has done something wrong. It, you know, always trying to find fault in someone else instead of seeing their own guilt. That brings me to mind, and it's just a side comment here, to Proverbs 18.1. So Proverbs 18.1. Sometimes... We can be so engrossed in our own reasonings, in our own thinking, that we do things that are irrational, that don't have sound judgment. We become foolish. Proverbs 18.1 says, He who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels, or he go against 
all sound wisdom. It's a warning to selfishness and self-centeredness and thinking about ourselves and feeling sorry for ourselves. What that leads us to a lack of sound judgment. Because it's all about me, and I withdraw God from his throne, and I am the most important person. So moving on to verse 27, Saul asked of the whereabouts of the son of Jesse. He doesn't even call David by his name. Probably he's just so mad at all the songs that people are singing about David. David killed his tens of thousands while Saul just killed his thousands. It's just, I don't even say the name of that man. I hate him so much. As David had requested, Jonathan passed on David's excuse to Saul in verse 28 and 29 here. We read that um, um, David earnestly asked me to leave to go to Bethlehem, for he said, please let me go, since our family has a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to attend. And then um, that was a catalyst that Saul needed. Saul's anger burned against Jonathan, and he said to him in verse 30, 30 to 31, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. I wonder if this whole thing of name-calling someone's mom started coming from that. Uh, do I not know that you are choosing the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom, again, think about your kingdom. Think about yourself. Why are you thinking about someone else? You will never be established. Therefore now send and bring him to me, for he must surely die. The rulers of this age understand neither the wisdom nor the power of God. God had chosen a man that is according to his own heart, not based on appearance, not based on um, drawing a crowd, but based on their heart and integrity. Saul is no exception. Jonathan, uh, he sees Jonathan as his stupidity. Uh, he takes him beside himself with rage. Jonathan puts Yahweh's servant David, Yahweh's word, the rejection of Saul's line, and the promise of king, the kingship to David in Yahweh's first kingdom, kingdom's first, even though he was officially and normally the one in line for the throne. One could say, and I'm going to read here a little bit the New Testament, that Jonathan emptied himself of his prerogative of being a, the next king. He was willing to suffer the loss of all things and to count them as rubbish, as Philippians 2, 8, 3, 8 says. I like uh, Pastor Davis' comments on this uh, interesting anachronism. It's out of the, the time, but Matthew 6.33. Open your Bibles there. Matthew 6.33. For whom we live, what is our goal in life? What is our priority? Matthew 6, 33. But seek first the kingdom 
of God or his kingdom and his righteousness. And all of these things will be added to you. Jonathan wasn't seeking his own kingdom. He wasn't seeking his own interest. He was seeking God's kingdom. He was the king over Israel. Acknowledging that David was that selected man was simply a submission to God's own plan. Which is precisely why Saul could not fathom Jonathan, why he thought him so dim-witted and dense, why with blue veins probably bulging from his neck, he was so enraged, why would you leave your kingdom for the sake of another person? And he screams at Jonathan, you and your kingdom will not be established. But that did not move Jonathan. He was bound and committed by covenant to David. He would remain faithful to the covenant, even if that cost him the goodwill of his father. Jonathan would have understood Jesus when he said, we, uh, actually Cody was teaching us today about the, the price of discipleship, of what being a true disciple of Jesus means. And Jesus, in Luke chapter 14, verse 26, he says, If anyone comes, comes to me and does not hate his father or mother or his wife or children, his brothers and sister, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So for all those that trust in the Lord, if they're not able to love the Lord more than they love their own parents, and the Bible is not telling you just... Hear me out. The Bible is not telling you that you should hate your parents, that you should hate your spouse and hate your kids. Is that compared to your love and commitment to God, the love of your parents compared to that, it's almost like hatred. It's so little compared to what your devotion to the Lord should be. So kind of looking back and forth in the Old Testament, New Testament, it's seen this connection of faithfulness and commitment Continuously. R.C. Sproul related a story about Charles Colson. Um, probably many of you are familiar with him. Who was heckled by a university student asking, Hey, Colson, why did you stick by Nixon? This is a political scandal that happened. And he simply responded, Because he was my friend. The audience applauded, and even though the audience did not approve of Nixon and the Watergate scandal, they recognized the value of Colson's loyalty that he would go to jail for a friend. I mean, if unbelievers, people that do not fear the Lord, can have this kind of loyal commitment that is willing to suffer for the sake of another person, how much more should we? If Jonathan is a uh, scribed, discipled by the kingdom of heaven, what does he teach us then? That the true life does not consist in securing you and your kingdom, but in reflecting God's faithfulness in covenant relationships. There is something liberating about that. Jonathan had acknowledged that the kingdom was God's, and therefore David's at that point, so his life did not need to be centered in his ambition, not of what I can get out of this, but what God's providence is going to bring my way. Whatever the Lord gives, it's what, I, what I'm going to take. 
even as a believer and not as a crown prince. My reigning passion is not to make my way, my living, my mark, and not to gain my place or to get ahead in this world. That might be costly, but it is certainly liberating. Life, and I'm quoting here um, Pastor Davis again, he says, Life does not consist in achieving your goals, but in fulfilling your promises, your commitments to God and to others. It is not about the recognition that you can get in this life, but the love, loyal commitment to God to live life that is fruitful or successful, not from a human standpoint, we look at Jonathan, and we'll see that in a few chapters from now, he's going to die in a war. What was his legacy? What was his um, conquests? Not much. And yet, we read of this loyal commitment that before the Lord was very valuable. Through the assessment of the one who looks at the heart, and it is close to those who are devoted to him and his kingdom. So this covenant really will have implications and it will be costly. It will demand costly commitment, even to the risk of one's life. Uh, yesterday we uh, went to, to the theater and watched the movie Essential Church. I don't know if some of you have seen the trailer. I really encourage you to, to watch it. And it's speaking about how churches stood um, in California and in Canada uh, to remain open during the restrictions of COVID-19 and how the Lord really preserved. I remember the testimony of Grace Life in a little church in Edmonton, Edmonton, Canada. And I knew a friend of mine that was one of the, lead, the elders there, James Coates, that kept his church open during that time. He went to jail for 30, I don't know how many, 36 days for refusing to keep his church closed. Why would he do that? Why would he be willing? And I, I remember I was already married. I came home to Lindsay, and I was just crying, just thinking, boy, I cannot imagine what it would be like being taken away from you, from my kids. Why am I willing to risk my life? Because they gave all those warnings to him. If you open the church, if you show up here, we're going to arrest you. Well, I can do no other thing. I am committed to these people. I'm here to shepherd them. Afterwards, they, um, they literally closed the gates of the church. They changed the lock so people wouldn't get in. So they, they went to a forest <laughs> and, and met there in the middle of nowhere. And I mean, think about Canada's cold weather. You're having an outside service <laughs> in that freezing cold. What kind of commitment would lead people to do that? To not consider their lives as important as a commitment that comes from a covenant. So um, it involves risks. It involves um, sacrifice. And then lastly, the covenant provides peace in the middle of confusion. Starting here on verse 35. Now it came about in the morning that Jonathan went out in the field in the appointment with David. And a little lad was with him, and he said to his lad, Run, find now the arrows which I am about to shoot. And the lad was running, and he shot an arrow past him. And when the lad reached the place of the arrow which Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the lad, 
and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the lad, Hurry up, be quick, do not stay. And Jonathan, Jonathan's lad picked up the arrow and came to his master. But the lad was not aware of anything. Only Jonathan and David knew about the matter. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to his lad and said to him, Go, bring them to the city. Now, I want to mind you here of what's happening. Um, remember that Saul is, is on the hunt for David. So there's no safe place, his own house. He had his daughter, <laughs> Saul's own daughter, to protect her, uh, David by taking him out of a window and, and help him to flee. Well, you have guards everywhere in Israel looking for David by Saul's command. So if Jonathan was going out to meet with David, certainly he couldn't be suspicious. So he came up with this idea of doing something else to detract from what is going on. Well, it's just going for a, an archery practice. I'm just going to shoot some arrows randomly here, and I'm bringing my servant to do that. So it was a, it was a genius plan. And as they come um, together, it says... Um, Jonathan then said, um, 41, When the lad was gone, David rose from the south side and fell on his face to the ground. He bowed three times, and then they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the more. Jonathan said to David, Go in safety, inasmuch as we have sworn to each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord will be between me and you and between my descendants and your descendants forever. Then he rose and departed while Jonathan went into the city. So in this solitude of an empty field, Jonathan and David met together face to face. Expressions of respect and mutual commitment marked their encounter. In the gravity of the moment, David initially spoke no words. Instead, he silently displayed subservience, he bowed down before Jonathan three times, and utmost respect for his friend by bowing before Jonathan three times. The greatest number of times that anyone in the Bible is described as bowing to someone else is a performing act of a single encounter. So Jonathan encountered David's symbolic expression of subordination with one that implied acceptance as a respected peer. And they wept together, though David wept the most. Jonathan seemed to understand that this encounter would be a watershed, the final encounter between these two friends. Never again would these two best friends enjoy an easy, informal camaraderie. And in his final moments with David, he, would, uh, he urged him to go in peace. And this is where I'm going to bring out this um, point of uh, bringing your attention to that word there, in safety. The word shalom is the word in place there. So what Jonathan is saying is, you go in peace. You go in peace because there is peace between us. An expression of good, goodwill used elsewhere in the Old Testament involving extended or permanent separations. Though David and Jonathan would be physically separated from one another, they would remain inseparably joined by the oath they swore in the Lord's name. Furthermore, the commitment would be intergenerational, continuing between their descendants forever. 
Having affirmed that commitment, the two friends left each other's presence to the next to the uh, next to the last time. Given the circumstances of Jonathan's words could seem laughable, go in safety. What are you talking about, Jonathan? I, you just told me that your dad is committed to kill me. I'm not going to be in peace. But we know he's serious. Go in peace while Saul stalks your life. Jonathan, however, is not claimed that all is peaceful and that, John, and that David will not meet danger in every hand. Jonathan is saying that David can go in peace because there is peace between the two of them. Because there is peace, uh, there is peace because we too have sworn an oath. Their covenant bond has established peace between them. It is as if Jonathan urges, go in peace because there is peace in this one item. In this one relation of ours, there is safety. There is an anchor here. There is this one relation that holds fast when all else may be instability and bewilderment. There is this one area where peace is established and reigns. It is not a, that a good description of our biblical peace. Biblical peace is not often a general tranquility but rather a, right, a rightness at the center of the midst of, term, of much turmoil. Being at peace when all around is crumbling down. Paul implied that Christians enjoy this peace with God, Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Actually, let's turn to Romans 5. Why can we be at peace in the midst of war? Why can we be at peace when we're being tempted, why can we be at peace when our family is being destroyed? One persons are against one another. How can we do that? Well, because we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. A peace that surpasses all understanding. How can someone go to jail and be okay with it? Because they have the security that no matter what happens with their life, the Lord will remain with them, the Lord will protect them, and take them safely home. Verse 3 of Romans. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings perseverance. This kind of peace helps us to go through afflictions. Jesus told his disciples, In me, you have peace. May you have peace. But in the world you have affliction. John 16, 33, he says that. So in the, in the Greek here, the emphasis is, in me, this is the place where you have peace. The Christian does not have peace because things are peaceful. He has peace because a greater one than Jonathan has spled his friendship to him. So if you doubt that, you have not been listening to the Lord's prayer. This cup is the new covenant. There's a word there, commitment. The new covenant sealed in my blood. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper today and having that reminder of God's commitment to his church and a reminder of our commitment to one another. It is the covenant bond, that unforsaking friend, that speaks peace in our disappointments, in the dangers, and even disasters. 
I want to conclude here in the same passage that we started. Romans 15, verse 4 and through 6. As we look to the example in the past, and we look at our own lives, are we taking seriously the commitment that we have made with one another? A commitment that the Lord has posed on us to be members of one another. So read those verses in, on that light. For whatever was written in the earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So as we look to that beautiful story, we should think there is hope. There is hope of trusting God and finding peace even when I see everything crumbling down. There is sacrifice that happens. Verse 5, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be the same, of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that in one, with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, help us to glorify your name. I know that this world is filled with apathy, apathy and non-committal relationships. But you have modeled to us, you have modeled yourself your commitment of sacrifice, of um, giving one's own life for another. You have given us the instruction, Lord, to be carrying one another's burdens and to be Jonathans, to be supporters, to be Barnabas. People, they are here for one another. They are committed to one another because they are committed first and foremost to you. Oh, help us, Lord. We so need your loving, loyal commitment so that we may rest in your promises. In this we pray, amen.